Paul's letter to the Romans. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desired. And her daughter was healed instantly. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. 
Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Would you open our hearts to its truth that we may see it and because of it be drawn more to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We are continuing our series in the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 11, uh, it continues to come to a head. There are implications for everything that he said in the previous 10 chapters or so. And we're seeing more and more questions being answered, and yet still some questions remain unanswered. Like, okay, so what now? And how do we operate? How does this work between Jews and Gentiles? And here and in chapter 11, and if you have your Bibles there, um, you can open up to that, that section. What we, what we begin to see is that, that God operates in a way that demonstrates two things, his severity and his kindness at the same time. We see it playing out, and um, though this chapter might be a little confusing, I, for one, forgive me, sometimes looking at, what are you saying? <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on. The illustration of the olive tree, and we'll open that up in a minute, um, helps actually quite a bit. And he's talking about two people. He's talking about the Jews or the people of Abraham and then everybody else. I would imagine that includes most, if not all, of us. But so how does God demonstrate these two kind of really seemingly opposite characteristics, to be severe, but also to be kind. I don't know about you, but as a father or a husband or even as a friend, if I'm waffling between those two, I mean, people might call me bipolar, right? You're just going back and forth. I I don't get it. You might even say, and a skeptic sometimes does, would say, your God is contradictory. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But I think what's helpful, and I'm going to give a little background as we dive into this, because he, he is talking about a major important part about God and his relationship towards us. But Paul does us a favor in his book of Romans. He points backwards so that we can see how God has operated in the past. And do you know how he demonstrates his both severity and kindness to human beings? He enters into covenant. He goes and has a friendship contract he, he makes a treaty. All these are, are fine words to help to explain that God takes his relationship with us very seriously. Now, as Texans, and maybe if you are in business, you would, uh, you would um, reflect this or understand this. We tend to like to say to people, you know, our word is our bond, or a handshake means the deal is done. And that's supposed to show some sort of like... Um, friendship or uh, easygoing, this is serious, but all we need is a handshake kind of thing. For most cultures and in, in, in history and in the Bible, it, it's a little bit more drawn out than that. When God makes a covenant or signs something with his people, it's actually very formal, very serious. Sometimes uh, coming away or coming across in dreams and visions, and certainly there's a lot of what you might say pomp and circumstance. But did you know the things that we value most in our lives, we tend to add a lot of uh, ritual to it, a lot of ceremony. We're all big Cowboys fans, and we know that when the season kicks off in a couple of weeks, there's going to be a lot of fanfare, a lot of ceremony when those how many players are on a football team? 60 or something like that? 40, whatever. They're introduced and the first game kicks off. You, I, Jerry Jones will have everything poured out, right? I think I've shared with you before my, my time that I went to go see, my first time that I went to go see um, 
a bull riding contest. And it was one of these, it wasn't the championship. I think they have the championship in Las Vegas or something like that. But it was one of the big ones that were leading up to it. And man, they had like uh, fireworks inside the stadium. And then this, this like uh, bull head um, made out of like gasoline and fire in the middle of the, the ring. And then the bull riders would come out. I mean, it was, it was a big deal because this was a big deal. And they were making it a big deal. If you look back at the covenants that God had gave Abraham and Moses and Noah and even Adam and Eve, there was ceremony and fanfare. There was poetry and agreements made. And those same kind of agreements, specifically with Abraham, uh, Paul returns to in earlier chapters of Romans. Whereas you might say the Mosaic covenant is done and finished, the Abrahamic covenant, if you, if you want to know a fancy term, continues on. It actually includes you and me. The Mosaic Covenant doesn't necessarily, but the Abrahamic Covenant continues. And it goes a little bit like this. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, he said, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Guess who that includes? You and me. So you see how the, the covenant given to Abraham, this very serious, ceremonial, and ritualistic agreement that God made, a very serious agreement that he made with Abraham, includes you and me. You and I, if we're sitting in this room and we know Christ as Savior, are under the same kind of covenant. And it goes, and this is where it applies to you and me even more, more individualistically maybe, is in verse 6 of chapter 15. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the catalyst for our faith, for our relationship with God that you and I have been made righteous, even though you and I know we're not. Meaning, you and I sin. We've sinned before. We continue to sin to some degree. We will continue to sin until the Lord returns or until we die or perish. But God takes our faith and it credits it to us as righteousness, just like he did for Abraham. Okay, I'm giving you all that so you understand what's happening then here in Romans chapter 11. You can't, you can't miss that. This is fundamental to our faith as Christians. You and I are made righteousness by faith, by believing in God, just as Abraham was. Some might say, well, I mean, aren't we justified by works? Yes, sort of, but not by your works and not by my works, but by the work of Christ. Those works. Even Abraham was credited righteousness by his faith and belief in God before he was circumcised. So before all that stuff started to happen, he was deemed righteous. So our God is both severe and kind. And so he gives kind of application. What should our response be then? How do we live? Well, <laughs> this may surprise you, but he says here in a, in a few moments, we'll read it uh, again. So let us be fearful of his severity and jealous of his kindness. <laughs> this is kind of this weird, almost like two opposite poles we're supposed to kind of like be in the middle of and feel both of them. The, the only thing that keeps coming to my mind, and it, and it has throughout my life, is actually my relationship with my father. Um, there was some ceremony to it, I'm sure. I mean, I was his first son, and there was the hospital and the doctors and the nurses, and there were tears and whatnot, and they went through that sort of routine. But our relationship as it played out, if I'm honest with you, was both severe and kind. Not severe in a negative way, at least not on its best days or right days, but severe in the fact that, well, my, my dad was a little intimidating and he had the power to spank me and he did when I misbehaved. And yet he was also kind and fun 
and goofy, and I knew that all too well. You know what? There was this one time uh, I was going to school in Oak Cliff at this uh, private school, and it was after school, and I was waiting for my dad to pick me up, and he often picked me up about 20 minutes after um, school was over, along with a couple other kids, dozen kids or so, and this was our routine. My dad usually picked me up about four. I can't remember the time exactly, uh, 20 or 30 minutes after school, but I used to have conversations with my friends uh, afterwards, and we'd joke and that sort of thing, and and then the, the parent would drive up, and when the parent drove up, it was, that was a little bit of a ceremony of itself. Who is it? Oh, it's that person. What kind of car do they drive? What do they look like? Whatever. You start making connections and starting to see beyond and, and start to understand well, who your friends are and why. Well, one day my dad pulls up, and he'd just come from work. He was in the middle of work, and he was wearing a suit and tie and in his car and stuff. He had a full beard, and uh, he pulls up. And all my friends are quiet. And we were just a moment ago laughing and joking and whatnot. My dad pulls up and I'm smiling. and I'm glad my dad, that's just normal being picked up kind of thing. See you guys later. And I'd never understood why they were so quiet. When I got to school, I think it was the very next day, my friend, I think her name was Keely. I think she was the one who talked to me. She goes, your dad is intimidating. And then a couple other kids chimed in. Yeah, he's scary. And I was like, what are you talking about? I knew my dad as being a little bit goofy and funny and kind and merciful. He's kind to everybody. And it occurred to me that that I I just took it for granted. And so my understanding of my father was kind of assumed. And this idea of severity and kindness was actually a perfect balance for me. I knew what that was like. But for somebody who was looking on the outside, all they saw was a businessman with a beard And he was like, hello, Mark, come on, you know, (laughs) all this seriousness. And I was like, my dad's kind of goofy. Paul gives an illustration here in Romans chapter 11 that I I think help explains this phenomenon that happens often when a person who grows up or is part of an organization, institution, or a family over time takes it for granted. And then a new person comes along and opens their eyes to something that maybe they didn't see or maybe that family or that, that person, part of the family, the institution, gets to explain. And so that's what we see here in Romans chapter 11. God talks about Jews and Gentiles, how they come together, and then how we respond to God. But there's a cut on, cutting off here first that he speaks of, and then a grafting, and then a regrafting. And this will shape our time this morning, this idea of being cut off, grafted, and regrafted. So like I said, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 11. And let's read some of this. In verse 13, Paul says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch that as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? I want to focus on something when we're talking about cutting off, okay? They have been rejected, Paul says. Why? Why has God's people... I mean, let's think about this for a moment. God chose the Israelites out of all people. He plucked Abraham out of this land called Ur of the Chaldeans. I don't even know where that is or what that is. Somewhere north of the Holy Land, I think. And plucked them out and pulled them out and said, I'm going to bless you. It's, it's almost arbitrary or whatever, but God had decided to say, I'm going to bless you. He sent them prophets and even sent them Jesus. He rescued them in battles and rescued them from Egypt, gave them his word and 
made covenants with them, poured wrath out on them and disciplined, forgave them again back and forth. God had, well, I don't know that he's done, he hasn't done this much for any people in all the earth, and yet they have been cut off, Paul says. Why? Well, it says in verse 20, I want to skip down, we're going to skip a little bit. It says here that it is true. They were broken off, he says, because of their unbelief. They were broken off because of their unbelief, meaning their distrust. God warned them when he gave them promises and covenants, all this ceremony and ritual. He said, if you obey my word, this will happen. If you don't, well, then you'll be cut off. And, he agreed, and, and of course that happened. Why? Why were they cut off? Because of their unbelief. And if you go back in chapter 10 and verse 3, it says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You see, the Israelites grew um, complacent. They looked at their heavenly father and forgot his severity. God doesn't, he's not like you and me that he goes, grows tired or he forgets. You know when you discipline your son or your granddaughter or something like that, and, or maybe they disobey or whatever, and you don't get the opportunity in that moment to, to discipline them, and then you just kind of forget, or you get over it, or it's like, ah, it's not worth it. God doesn't operate that way. He never forgets. He stores it up. It is all eventually paid for. You and me, that might sound a little bit harsh, my, my, my wife would look at me and say, oh, Mark, get over it. They're kids, you know. What we're appealing to, we can't miss this, though, is actually the, 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 the divine origins of forgiveness in the first place. That when you and I forget sins or brush over them, we're only doing it successfully because God has shown us forgiveness in Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? Successfully. Meaning a lot of times you and I forget sins and we truly forget them or we brush over in them, but all we're really doing is just sweeping it under the rug. Eventually it will come out unless it's dealt with. God makes sure that he deals with every sin. He doesn't sweep it under a rug. Part of the glory of him and his goodness, of course, is that he places it all on Jesus. And I don't want to forget that. But it says here that the Israelites were ignorant of the righteous of the righteousness of God, they made little of the moral requirements of a holy God. As such, they dared to think they could meet those requirements. A lot of them, even the most success, successful, made up their own requirements. They ignored what God wanted them to do. This is what the, right, this is what the Pharisees often did. But as we see in verse 3 and then later in verse 4, it gets worse. This is back in chapter 10. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We know this is true because when Christ finally came, guess what? The Jewish people, most of them, did not believe. We see, um, in fact, in that horrible scene where uh, Pontius Pilate brings out Barabbas and Jesus, he says, pick one. I'll release one. It's a custom to do this. You pick one. And these very same Jews, God's people, said, give us Barabbas. It's not that they liked Barabbas. They just hated the holiness in Christ so much. You and I do the same thing. The people of the world do the same thing. Because we lack holiness and goodness in our own lives, we can't stand it in other people. And so they, they forgot the severity of God. And so 
so God cut them off. So the question becomes, and this is where I, at the very beginning, I said there's continuing questions that leave unanswered. Then how can God be faithful to his promises if he cuts off his people? He cuts them off for what? For what reason? Because of unbelief. How can God continue to bless Abraham and bless the world through Abraham? Well, this is where the grafting comes in. The Gentiles um, were grafted in. They're not part of the family of God. They've been adopted in or grafted in. Now, I don't know if you work in the garden or have ever done anything like this. I've never done anything like this. I had to read about it. Basically, you can cut off a, a branch of, of an existing bush or tree and then take another like or kind of that same tree and graft it on, and it actually grows on that same bush or tree. It's like miraculous, in my opinion. I didn't know you could do that. Well, Paul is saying that God has taken foreign people, and who are Gentiles? Everybody else. So it doesn't matter if you're Chinese or white or black or Italian or South American, Brazilian, whatever. If you're not a Jew, if you're not of the tribe of Abraham, you can be grafted into the people of Abraham, to the people of the promise. The Jew belongs naturally, but the Gentiles, you and me, don't. So what is natural, natural about the Jew is unnatural about the Gentile. Why is this important? Because it's important that we not remain or get haughty or let it go to our head. That because you and I are Christians, we are somehow, in, I don't know, worthy of this and look down upon other Jews. This is kind of what Paul is getting to. If you look at, uh, what verse was this? He said, if this is true, then you need to fear in verse 20. You were broken off because, they were broken off because of their unbelief. We read that a moment ago. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. It's like the person who joins the family and is new to the family sudden go, well, see, I'm better than everybody else. No. If God has the power to cut off the Jew, then certainly he can cut off the Gentile. There's been a tendency in our world for the Jews to be hated by lots of different people. We certainly see that in World War II, but there's many other eras and nations where that has been um, prevalent. It was true during this time as well, during the people of Rome. It was common to belittle and disrespect them. Someone even said that this is kind of maybe a reason for it, that because they did not assimilate into secular or pagan culture, the Jews were a figure of amusement, contempt, or hatred to the Gentiles among whom he lived. The, the Jew was among whom he lived. You've probably experienced that as a Christian, haven't you? Where if you've made a decision not to assimilate into the world around us, into the culture of Dallas, into the secular, pagan, ungodly culture, you've probably gotten a nose up to you or um, criticized. You don't fit in to a godless society. You shouldn't. People will find contempt for you for just not fitting into the way they live. And so when we think about the Jews, our response shouldn't be good riddance, but maybe our response should be pity and prayer. Why? Because God can regraft them in, he says. And that will, that will bless the world even more. 
That's what he's getting at here in Romans chapter 11. There's almost like a hidden prophecy here that if, if at some point, that's what some people think, the, a large number of Jews suddenly come to faith, that that will be the culmination of this period of the church. So what has the grafting of the Gentiles done? It has actually, Paul hopes, made Jewish people jealous. And what do I mean by jealous? I don't mean envy. I like to tell my kids that jealousy is different than envy. Um, jealousy means that you want something that naturally belongs to you. And envy is you want something or desire something that doesn't belong to you. It doesn't always work out that way in some of the way we, ways we talk, and I don't want to make too big a point on it. But I think that's what Paul is getting at here. This naturally belongs to the Jew. Theirs is the prophets. Theirs is the law. Theirs is the history. And so they need to be regrafted in. Um, now, I'm going to stop there with all that stuff because it's just a lot of teaching, and I don't want to overwhelm you, but it's this picture that I want to finish at, this picture of this olive tree. It was common uh, for the Jewish nation to be pictured as an olive tree. So we get this picture of cutting off a branch that doesn't believe and being replaced by a wild branch from a wild olive tree. Do you know that um, somebody, there's been some people throughout history who've criticized Paul here because this is actually not what farmers or vine dressers do, apparently. You wouldn't naturally, don't miss this, you wouldn't naturally cut off a shoot from a, a, a natural tree or a cultivated tree, one that you cared for, and then put on the shoot of a wild olive tree. That's not what you, a normal person would do. You do the opposite. You would actually try it in, in order to um, to cultivate and care for a wild olive tree, you would take uh, one, a, like a natural one, the one that you cultivate, and put it on that one. And so people have criticized Paul. It almost like appears that Paul is like a city boy who doesn't understand actually the illustration he's using. You could even go so far as to say the Bible is getting it wrong here. This is a terrible illustration. Well, about 120 years ago, there was this guy. Oh, this was so cool to read. His name was Sir William Ramsey. Uh, this was back in 1905. He wrote something that opened many eyes to the passage and gave, gave this a new light. And it's this, that there were extraordinary times when you would take a wild olive tree branch and put it on a cultivated one. When would you do this, you might ask? Great question. <laughs> when you wanted to reinvigorate a fruitless tree. Think for a moment that you had a, 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 an orchard or something, or you had just a garden in your backyard, and you had this bush or some sort of fruit tree that you had cultivated and cared for over the years, and it did great. But over time, it stopped bearing fruit. The, the word that John Stott used when he was talking about this, uh, when I read about this, is that the, the bush would become decadent. I love that word. Imagine a spiritual decadence where you just, you got fat, you got happy about your own position, and you stopped bearing fruit. What does this look like in the Christian's life when you've gotten decadent? In the life of a person who has placed their faith in God, where you're not bearing fruit any longer. Sir William Ramsey said, it is customary to reinvigorate an olive tree, which is ceasing to bear fruit by grafting with a shoot of the wild olive, so that the sap of the tree ennobles this wild shoot and the tree now again begins to bear fruit. You see what happens. The original tree that is not bearing fruit has got this new wild shoot. And it goes, ah, I guess I got to work on this. And starts sending sap into the new branch. And lo and behold, the rest of the bush starts to bear fruit. You see Paul's illustration come to life now, don't you? 
This idea of jealousy that it's making the people of God, the Jews, the sons and daughters of Abraham, jealous when they see Gentiles come to put their faith in a Jewish Messiah, that when it comes to happen that they start bearing fruit, you'll see the work of God, the sovereignty of God, playing out as it's supposed to. So what is your and I responsibility? Is to not to grow decadent like them and to not rest on our laurels, so to speak, but to remain in fear, to remember the severity of God. It was jolting to me when my friend said, your dad looks mean. And I was like, he's not mean, he's goofy and it's funny. But it made me think, sometimes he's mean when I misbehave or things are not going as it should be. My dad can be severe, but he's always kind and he's always loving. My father is not a Christian, but I thank God that he gave me a father that raised me in such a way that I recognize these truths. My father was a kind and is a kind father. It's helped me to see and to imagine our God, our heavenly father, that yes, he is severe, but he is also kind. And we see the end result of this, don't we? That not only is God desirous of Okay, Jews, you're not getting this. I'm going to spread my gospel to the ends of the earth and bless the entire world. But God is also desirous of still rescue, rescuing and pining after his own sons and daughters, the sons and daughters of Abraham. God is the kind of God, the God we serve is the kind of God that doesn't give up, that doesn't turn his back, that doesn't forget. He is constantly wooing. He is constantly pursuing he is constantly hunting. He is constantly waiting. And that means for you too. And that's an amazing thing. We see God's severity and we see his kindness most appropriately at the cross. It's perfect. The God puts to bed forever the sins of the world on his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus welcomes it and says, yes, Father, your will be done but it's also his kindness playing out. That we know you and I are made righteous because of that one act. He gave up everything that he could for you and me. He didn't hold anything back. And so God wishes and desires for us to be saved, but also for the sons and daughters of Abraham to be saved. And one day they will be. A large number of them, maybe. Maybe all of them, we don't know. But that's what we're looking forward to. To the blessing of the entire world world, the entire planet. When God rolls up the cosmos and remakes it, heaven and earth will be joined together forever. This is the God we serve. He is severe because he's serious. He doesn't just make a handshake. No, he made a covenant with you and me by blood. And that's an amazing thing because now we get how truly kind he is, how full of love and grace. It's not something simple, something casual, but most serious. His smile is serious, and he's smiling on you now. So I invite you to understand that, to welcome that, to see God's severity and kindness in one act, Christ's death and resurrection for you and for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing even few verses in this chapter. 
It demonstrates to us how serious you are about salvation. That you don't leave anyone to burn. You don't leave anyone rejected. Even those who came and rejected you once or twice, you have the power, in other words, the ability and the desire and the authority to regraft them, to regraft us. So Lord, would you keep us? Would you keep us in your vine and in your tree? Would you keep us in Christ? We pray these things in his name. Amen. Will you please stand?